Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. I'm your host, Alex Banco. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by the Skilled Nursing News Rethink Virtual Conference on September 30th. This virtual event will feature more than a dozen speakers focused on the issues and challenges facing the industry, including C-suite executives from national providers and REITs, as well as other industry thought leaders who are shaping the national discussion around skilled nursing and therapy. Visit skillednursingnews.com slash events for more information and find out how you can purchase a ticket. I hope to see you virtually on September 30th. Early in her career, Susan Ryan dedicated her work to keeping elders out of nursing homes entirely. Over time, she realized there would always be a portion of the older population that required around-the-clock care, but she still thought that they deserved something better than the traditional facilities where she had worked. That desire led her to the Greenhouse Project, a nonprofit group dedicated to designing the nursing homes of the future, with small groups of residents living in private rooms with manageable shared common and dining areas. The model has seen considerable success at keeping residents safe from the COVID-19 pandemic, and the Greenhouse Project has garnered national attention as calls for nursing home reform grow louder. I wanted to talk to Susan, now the project's senior director, about her passion for the model and how curious investors and operators can make greenhouses work in the real world. Here's our conversation. For a little background and just for my edification, you know, what is your role at the Greenhouse Project? And, you know, we'll go from there. Sure. I am the senior director and I've been with Greenhouse for 12 years. And I guess, you know, just to give you a little bit of context of kind of who I am, and why I do feel so passionately about the model. I am a nurse, and I was a former director of nursing eons ago and had what I call my call-to-action moment in a nursing home where we were at that time tying people up to keep them from falling, and that was considered best practice. And somehow in my heart, I thought this is not right. It didn't. I was young and just thought there's no way this can be a good thing. So I accepted a job actually with a grant-funded program to prevent the institutionalization of the elderly. And I said, I'm going to keep people out of nursing homes and did that for a really long time till actually 2001 and tried to come up with every program that I could to keep people in their own homes. 2001, I went back into long-term care. With We've got to reform it because as good as home care is, it can be cost prohibitive or socially isolating. And I thought home care is great and I still love home care. And I'm always happy to see what they're doing to expand services and, uh, you know, get really creative. And I'm hoping funding will improve for home care. But we will always, always need, in my opinion, skilled nursing homes. and. When I, so I, you know, I'm working with a community in Maryland and hear about this thing called the greenhouse model, went to Tupelo, Mississippi in 2005. I saw it and I'm like, oh my God, this is home care and long-term care coming together. It's like my worlds have just merged. And so we ended up not doing greenhouse, but we did something like it, but we did it for assisted living. We weren't quite sure it would fit within the regulatory environment. And so we decided assisted living, we could do this in assisted living. So 16 private rooms with private showers. And we did not do the universal worker that Greenhouse had. So we kind of picked and chose what we thought made sense. So was working on that with this organization in 2008, they were 
Bay Green Health was looking for a nurse, and so they reached out to me because I had kind of been doing some culture change, and they thought that, oh, gosh, a, a local nurse that has culture change, that's good. So I went to work initially with Green Health as a project guide and worked with providers who had decided to become part of Green Health and do the new build, the new construction, build Green Health homes. So I, I really got immersed into Green Health through working with providers to bring it to fruition, working with architects, working with regulators to kind of go through the regulatory process, and then, you know, supporting them through the education with leadership and team development. And then became chief operating officer, I guess, midway through. And then in 2014, I think it was, I became the senior director. So I've, you know, kind of worked in different capacities within Greenhouse, but I think, you know, and now that the pandemic hit, I think if ever there is a case to be made for going the distance and doing something like this, gosh, this is the time. And I think our data would show that a case could be made for a model kind of made for the moment, if you will. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's great background. And I think it's interesting, and I think you make a good point, and I think it's something that does get lost in all this, is that the, you know, the, the post-acute landscape is, is and long-term care landscape is, is complicated. And, you know, I, I totally agree with you intellectually. You know, I think about myself and my family members. I would never want to go to a nursing home and I write about them. <laughs> of course, you want to stay home. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, of course, you want to stay home as much as you can. But, you know, I, I have come in, you know, in my time covering the industry, I've also come to that conclusion that you have that, yes, we're always going to need this kind of setting for some people in some cases. But we're now seeing, you know, and you know, what I think we're seeing right now is sort of the the chickens coming home to roost, so to speak, you know, the, the way that we've underfunded the system in some ways and the ways that yep. we've neglected reforms and the ways that, you know, we did the way that I like, you know, because people ask me all the time about, you know, they know what I do for a living and they read the stories about nursing homes and, you know, they say, what's going on? What's up? And the way that I always try to say it is that like the system was already kind of like no one really designed the current system that we have right now. It just kind of evolved, you know, over decades by inertia. And we're getting what we paid for, basically. And so I, I agree that, you know, I think this is the time. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the data. Do you have it? I know I've seen some data points early about about the, the COVID successes that you've had within the greenhouse model. Do you have any updated information as of, you know, whatever the most recent data was? So our data is through May 31st, and we're in the process mm-hmm. of collecting June data. So we'll have update probably by the end of next week on what changed in the month of June. Um, you know, as we're seeing surges in different states, you know, I'm interested to see if there is a correlation to potentially impacting greenhouse homes as, you know, Arizona, we've got greenhouse homes there, Florida, we've got the greenhouse homes there. So I, I, I'll be eager to see what the data shows us. But right now, I mean, 95% of those that responded, that represents 229 greenhouse homes were COVID free. Wow. And, yeah, only one death in among elders and only 32 cases. So 95% COVID free. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's, you know, that's, that's incredible based on the numbers yeah. that we're seeing elsewhere and, <laughs> right. you know, just all the other factors of the, you know, the, the, the people who are in nursing homes are more vulnerable to the virus and just the, the challenges of congregate living. Where do you see, and you know, one of the things that, that I find really frustrating covering the industry, you know, both from a, a building level and also a financial perspective and investment 
is that I feel like this has been a problem that people have told me ever since I've been covering the industry and it was going on long before is that, you know, we need new options for long-term custodial care, especially Medicaid funded care, but no one wants to pay for it, right? You know, no one, the, the Medicaid rates are so low that unfortunately we live in, a, in an ecosystem where you require investment to build new facilities. The government's not going to build them for you. And there just hasn't been a ton of interest on that because people look at Medicaid rates and they say, well, it's not a good investment. You know, there, there's no, there's just been no like groundswell toward, okay, here's, we know the problem, but there's been no groundswell to how to fix it. You know, how do you think going forward, you can encourage investment in new greenhouse style facilities like the ones that we've seen so much success with so far? You know, Alex, it's such a good question. And, you know, I have scratched my head. If this is so good, why hasn't everybody just jumped on board? (laughs) And so here's, you know, as I reflect on it, as I look at this moment in time, and I think if it doesn't happen, no, you, you described it as inertia. You referenced the underfunding. You referenced the challenges around Medicaid. And those, that's absolutely positively, yes, it's all true. And yet, you know, I, the people who have done it, the leaders who have embraced it, these are the forward thinking providers. They are the ones who have said, these aren't all the reasons why, here are the reasons you can't do it. <laughs> but I'm instead looking at how can I make it happen? And I'm going to make it happen because there's something in my gut that feels like, and I'm seeing other greenhouse homes doing it that is going to give me a competitive advantage. It's doing the right thing for elders and their family members and and the right thing for staff. And I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. So I have a for-profit provider in Arkansas, large percentage of Medicaid, and he has 34 homes over four campuses, and he will open another 10 homes. He said uh, in October on a fifth community. So it tells me he has figured out a way to make it happen. And he's worked through whatever regulatory challenges. And I I can tell you that, yes, he is mission-minded, but um, he's also margin-oriented. And he has figured out how to make it happen. And, you know, what to me is, is, rather compelling is that when we were talking about occupancy, he said his occupancy, he says, in fact, we have gained <laughs> over the, the pandemic as people were looking for places to move their loved ones. And they heard we had a bed, a, a room open. We, we were able to take admissions. So, you know, I just think that we have to kind of shift our thinking and say, here are all the reasons we can't, but say, let's figure out how we can make it happen. Let's embrace the concept that this makes sense, and then let's figure out how to do it. And I will say that every state's a little bit different in terms of Medicaid reimbursement. And so, you know, there are states, arguably, that are easier than others to do, but it's, you know, really determining how you get the right payer mix and how you have the right financing how you control your development costs and your operating costs, that you'll make it work. Yeah. And, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I agree with you on, (laughs) I agree with you on all those counts. And, you know, on top of the Medicaid issue, you know, I spoke with a greenhouse developer, a, a company that's developing a greenhouse model on Martha's Vineyard, the Navigator Homes Project. And 
they were talking to me about the regulatory issues. And, you know, I think part of it as well is that like regulators don't always know what to make of it, even though this model has been around for a long time. If you haven't seen it in your marketplace, it's a little confusing. And she was talking to me about all the different, you know, ways that they had to talk with the regulators and sort of show them what was happening and get maybe some certain variances for regulations. Is that a challenge? Or are you seeing, you know, especially now, are you seeing more uptake and you're seeing more acceptance and, you know, more willingness to adapt among regulators as, you know, you're working with the the companies that are developing these projects? I think, you know, in, well, hopefully we won't hit a post-pandemic era, but, you know, I, I don't know what will happen from a regulatory perspective as they react to COVID and how you know, a concern of mine would be that there will be a tendency to just really go in and try to control from a regulatory perspective and really, I hate to say it, make it more institutional. But let's put that aside because I don't think anyone has the crystal ball to see what might happen. I think in every state that we have greenhouse homes, and I've been a part of many of those conversations at the State Department level, and once they understand how the greenhouse model meets or exceeds the intent of that regulation, they will embrace it. And I'll use an example in Tennessee. I'll never forget talking to, gosh, he was an engineer, and I had presented on greenhouse, and he was so concerned about the um, about fire safety, and I was pushing for a gas fireplace and open kitchen, all those things that just than terror <laughs> down an engineer's spine. <laughs> and he says, there will be no fire on my watch in a nursing home. And I said, absolutely. And I said, let me show you how greenhouse homes are built to really ensure there is safety, the four exits, blah, blah, blah. So we kind of went through the design. And at the end of the conversation, as he and I were talking and I was showing, you know, how I believed we met or exceeded the intent and, you know, in, in context of the quality of life for those that would live there, he says, you know, do you have any, and he started talking about where his grandmother lived. And he says, this would be really good for my grandmother. And then it says, a light bulb went off and he realized, wow, this would be really good for somebody that I love and I care for. And so then we went back to the drawing board and he talked about, so here's the waiver that we will do. Here's what you need to do for a gas fireplace in order for me to feel that it's safe. And so we've got gas fireplaces, as an example, in the state of Tennessee. Other states, we don't have gas fireplaces. Um, California, we don't have a fireplace at all. We could not work through the, the regulatory requirements, but it did not preclude the two homes to be built. And so it's really building the relationship, building the trust, and really building an understanding of what we're trying to accomplish Regulations were not written with a greenhouse in mind. They were written for an institution in mind. And so until there's regulatory reform that would contemplate something like this, we will, you know, have to tackle it one state at a time. And even in the case of Massachusetts, where we've got other greenhouse homes there, what you're telling me with the navigator experience is that um, there are probably, there's turnover at the State Department level. And so you're really having to do some re-education with new stakeholders that come in. And that's part of the work that we do. We have the track record of greenhouse homes all across the country that have opened to help frame that conversation going forward. Yeah, and, you know, the, the story about the fireplace, I think that's really instructive because I think 
And I, you know, there's some more forward thinking leaders that I've spoken to that, that talk about that. That really speaks to treating people who require around the clock nursing home care as adults, you know, <laughs> as, as yes. people who still yeah. have, you know, I think there's so much, the more I covered it, the more I realized there are so many well-meaning people out there who want to make sure the regulations are as strict as possible and who want to make sure people are safe and, and they, they are on the side of the angels. And I, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with their intentions, but there is some, right. there's a level of infantilization there, right? That like you're treating them like they're children in a daycare center exactly. And, exactly. and not necessarily, you know, I think about the, the, what's always been sort of my lodestar when I write about the industry is I think I had a great aunt who had multiple sclerosis and she lived on her own on top of a mountain in rural Vermont <laughs> in a little, wow. you know, one story house. And, uh, she was in a wheelchair the whole time I knew her. And as she got older, she had more complications with that. And she had to have both of her legs amputated and she was living alone. And, and finally it just, you know, it became too much. My family couldn't, couldn't handle her. She was calling, you know, the, she was calling the, the ambulance service, you know, every time she like, uh, dropped something, mm-hmm. you know, she, she couldn't be alone right. anymore. And she went to a very nice nonprofit facility in, in rural Vermont. And they, again, I, I remember being very scared when I went to go visit her because I was picturing, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest or whatever. I was, I was maybe 18 <laughs> or 19 when they moved her in there. And I was very opposed to it. And I was like, you know, I don't know about this and I didn't understand. And, you know, I went there and she had her own, she had her own room and there was, there was a chapel. She was very Catholic and she got to go to the chapel and still participate in that. And it, it felt more like a home than I was expecting. So I always think about that. And I always think about, you know, how I, it made me feel better. And she, she lived there for three or four years until she eventually passed away in her late eighties. And it was very nice. It was very comforting to know that that was the kind of care she got. And I always try to keep that in mind when I think about sort of the interplay between regulation and treating these people like humans, <laughs> the humans that they are. And I think, I think that's a big hurdle that we're going to have to overcome while we, while we think about these issues for reform going forward. I so appreciate what you're saying. And I, you know, I think I call it ageism and ageist stereotypes, stigmas, our beliefs that we have about people as they age, especially if there is cognitive decline. And, you know, God forbid you're talking about someone living with dementia and then all of a sudden it's like they're going to turn the gas the the gas flame on they're gonna you know just get into the burn i mean it's like are you kidding me even somebody living with dementia it's amazing to me our procedural memory system is so intact it's the longest that remains intact do we need to be safe of course we need to be safe and we need to do some things but we also need to look at our needs as humans and our humanity does not diminish as we get older and we don't become ch- children again, you know. So I, I think it's, um, yeah, it's some of those beliefs and ageism that really is so impacting kind of what we do and what we will do from a reform perspective. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's, you know, I think that's kind of one of the things that I've tried to hammer home so much in our coverage, too, is that, you know, reform, yes, does include, you know, let's look at infection control, let's look at staffing, let's try to figure out these nuts and bolts things to get it better, but it can't stop there. I feel like one of the things that really concerns me is when I, and I read a lot of national news stories, is I feel like the media has been obsessed with this liability issue. You know, the, the nursing homes want, want to, you know, they want to be not held liable for their actions during the crisis. And I get that that's an important issue. And, and I think that I don't, I personally don't have much of an opinion on it. I see both sides of that issue, but 
I feel like that's like a red herring almost like that's that's a distraction. That's you're not looking at the bigger problems. Like, yes, we should figure out a way to assign responsibility and figure out what justice looks like for the people who were harmed. But I feel like we're losing out on that perspective of there's a whole generation of elders who are are coming and, you know, that's not going to cut it for them to to, that's not going to fix things for them. Alex, that was so well said, and I couldn't. Oh, I could not. I could not agree with you more. And you know, I I have to be really careful because I don't want to. Because I'm not operating a nursing home. I you know I am a healthcare professional, if you will. I am a nurse. I've been there, done that, but I'm not doing it right now. So I want to certainly make it very clear. I I hold in high esteem those that are doing it. At such a time as this, especially, I, you know, I do think they're real heroes. That having been said, I think until we really kind of confront the, the honest truth and to your point, that's such a distraction. And we have to acknowledge that it wasn't good enough. And it, it, it truly was one of the national publications that actually I was interviewed on that it, why the nursing home is a design failure. And why it really, not just physically in its design, but philosophically and all the things, some of the things you've been talking about, why it's a design failure. And if we can't get honest about kind of why we're here and what we need to do to the impact the next generation that you're talking about, the shame on us that we are, you know, more worried about the litigation and, uh, you know, being exempt from it because of the challenges we face. You know, it's tough. It's uncomfortable. It's, challenging, but I just think if we don't come together and try to figure out what we're going to do going forward, we have wasted a pandemic, a wasted a crisis to really bring change. And that would take me to the next thing, that's the protest. Similarly, and, and I do think racism is a, a part. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is linked to the conversation you and I are having. And I think, as I've often said, we've got to confront our isms and ageism and racism and how it impacts what we're doing with regards to nursing homes and how we need to improve what we're doing. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.